And that's actually how I define DevSecOps. It's empowered engineering teams taking ownership of their products all the way to production, which includes security. So I have the same definition for DevOps as I do for DevSecOps. Hi, you're listening to The Secure Developer. It's part of the MyDevSecOps community, a platform for developers, operators, and security people to share their views and practices on DevSecOps, Dev and Sec collaboration, cloud security, and more. Check out mydevsecops.io to join the community and find other great resources. This podcast is sponsored by Sneak. Sneak is a dev-first security company, helping companies fix vulnerabilities in open source components and containers without slowing down development. To learn more, visit sneak.io. On today's episode, Guy Pajani, president and co-founder of Sneak, talks to Larry Macaron. Larry is an industry-recognized thought leader on Lean Agile, Analytics, and DevSecOps. He currently leads the DevSecOps transformation at Comcast. Previously, Larry led the Insights product line at Rally Software, where he published the largest ever study correlating development team practices with performance. Before Rally, he worked at Carnegie Mellon with the Software Engineering Institute and Scilab, conducting research on cybersecurity and software engineering. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Thanks for tuning back in. Today, we have a really kind of forward-thinking guest in this world of DevSecOps, and we'll dig into a lot of his talks. We don't have time to dig into all of them, unfortunately, which is Larry Maccheroni from Comcast. Larry, thanks for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Guy. So, Larry, you're a distinguished engineer focusing on DevSecOps transformation at Comcast. Can you explain us a little bit about, first of all, like what does that mean? And maybe take us a little bit back in history of how did you even get into security? I'll take the second part of that first then. Sure, go for it. So I'm an electrical engineer, computer science sort of graduate from Virginia Tech. Started my first business while I was still an undergrad at Tech, actually. Grew it to 20 million a year in sales, 80 employees. We were factory floor automation process controls, and our biggest client was GE Power Generation. So at one point, 60% of the world's power generation was actually being controlled by software we had written. So if the bad guys could exploit a vulnerability in that, it could be really bad. You could bring down the power grid. So we got really good at writing essentially vulnerability-free software. I spun out a second company, my second startup, as a matter of fact, basically packaging this framework for other people to use it. And Carnegie Mellon sort of got wind of it, invited me to be a founding director of their Scilab there, the cybersecurity lab at Carnegie Mellon. That's how I got started. Yeah, really. no, that's very cool. And in those cases, like that first role wasn't security-minded. It was sort of functionality or sort of building that technology and security was just an important piece of it, which kind of exactly. lured exactly. you into actually honing in on security as the actual profession. Correct. And I'm a developer. I was a developer back then. I'm a developer now. I write code every day. I've got a dozen open source projects, one of which gets half a million downloads a month. And I still actively process all the pull requests and add features to those things. So I stay very current with my technical skills, which I think is a big help in trying to get developers to do it differently. You have to sort of relate to them and that yeah. helps. Build that empathy. Yeah, for sure. And just before we leave that sort of path, your history does kind of point you out as a data analyst, right? And focusing that. So was that sort of in between? Was that part of the security journey or was that a deviation off to the side? 
people think of me as an expert in various different fields, process controls. They think of me expert in cybersecurity. They think of me an expert in agile transformation. But the really underlying theme for all that is that my particular angle on it is always what is the most effective measurement and visualization you can use to further those causes. And so I've been sort of a specialist in that. That's sort of like the deep knowledge I have that I have used over and over again. The new sort of meta capability that I've grown in the last decade or so is really around studying the psychology of developers and the sociology of development teams and how you leverage those things to get people to change. And it ties in really closely with the data side because people respond to correlations that are visually very impactful to them. And so you have to have the visualization to sort of get them to move to the new place you want them to move to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing how properly describing something, visualizing it, choosing the right taxonomy, creating, you create the mental model that, that people can do and you can take the exact same actions. And if the met- mental model is flawed, right, or if it's not as compelling to the listener, or if it's just unclear, you're not going to get anywhere near the same results. So, you know, I think perception is reality, right? Figuring out how do you present it, how do you guide it, what is it that you measure is a core component of driving to results. And I think that's been a fundamental problem in the security world when the security folks use a term or an acronym that they assume everyone knows in front of a developer. Best case, the developer says, I don't know what you mean by that, and you get a chance to explain it. But there's some cases where the words actually have different meaning to a security specialist than they do to a developer. And so they frequently go down the wrong path when you aren't very careful about that language that you choose to use. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dig into this transformation and this change. And you've given a great talk at RSA that I'm actually going to dig into some aspects of it. I found the talk fascinating as a whole, and we'll put links to it in the show notes for people to watch the whole thing. But the talk revolves around a lot of how do you measure and visualize and transform Comcast, which I imagine holds also your perspective on the market as well in this sort of journey to embrace DevSecOps or get developers to embrace security. So if you don't mind, let's maybe dig into that. Can you tell us just at a high level, what is this project? Like, what is the initiative, a little bit context inside of Comcast? What's the driver? What's the core philosophy before we dig into the details? Yeah, so security tends to think of vulnerabilities in the security group. They tend to ding the team or police the team or gatekeep the team with this list of things. And it's very expensive because there's a lot of follow-up. It's very ineffective and it's very confrontational. So people on the security side, you know, get burnt out fast and cycle through. And the teams never really sort of feel like they're helping. They always feel like they're the enemy. And so the whole idea of agile transformation, at least the way I conducted it when I did that as a consulting job, and DevOps transformation is you really have to build trust with the team, assume that they want to do the right thing, and then they just need help understanding exactly what that is and a gradual learning curve. So you don't want to give them all of security in day one. You want to give them three practices that they could focus on in the next few sprints that they could implement in their process. And then you want to come back and coach them to the next one. So the whole program I developed around that included a way of measuring it, a way of visualizing it to a single team and aggregating it for a whole org, that whole concept I developed for Agile Transformation. And then Nuper Davis, who's the CISO at Comcast, saw me give a presentation on that and essentially said, come work with me at Comcast. This is the right approach to getting 
development teams to change the way they behave it. The way we're doing it right now is just policing them and beating them up and it's no fun for anyone. Yeah. How receptive was the team? It sounds like the CISO was on board or in fact sort of driving for that change. Did it require <laughs> much convincing amidst the security team itself? You know, was there a lot of cajoling and how did that go? Yeah, so I got the senior executive leadership of the company, Comcast, pretty on board really fast. And I always connect easily with the lowest level development teams. And frequently, they have engineering managers, maybe two or three levels above them, that get it and really sort of say, this is the right way to do it. The middle level management, the ones especially that didn't come from an engineering background, have a tough time with this approach. They really want to take a more rigid policing or governance sort of approach. And the security people absolutely rebel and it just doesn't match their mental model at all. They don't trust the developers. They start with that concept that they're going to put stuff out there that's going to get us hacked. And as soon as you think that way, and all the language you use and all the way you interact with folks sort of that comes out and they sense it immediately. And so you have to start with this alternative approach. I think the thing that helped the most is the pledge that we came up with. So I didn't actually have that before I got to Comcast, unlike a lot of the concepts. I found that I was having trouble getting the rest of the security group to essentially get on board with this mission. And so we developed this thing called the pledge and Nooper at some point said, you've tweaked it enough. This is the way we want to do business. Everybody must get on board essentially. And so that's what happened. The pledge essentially starts with what I just said. We trust you. We trust that you want to do the right thing. We understand that you may need help understanding what that is. And then more importantly, we've got to make it easy for you to do the right thing. We've got to give you the easy path. The, the right thing to do should be the easiest thing to do, actually. And our role is not of policing and gatekeeping. It's toolsmithing and it's coaching. The tools we provide you better be really easy and consumable, fit with your mental model, fit with your pipeline, et cetera. Yeah, and I think that's a powerful shift in perception. So defining the pledge sounds very valuable. Once defined and you told people, listen, you need to kind of get with the program, did people then accept it? I mean, how much transformation do you need to do on just the mindset side of the security piece for this change to work? Yeah, so this security side, it's a constant battle still today, but it's more and more people over time. And this isn't the first time I've done this. If you remember back 15 years ago or so when the Agile movement sort of came about, the quality, the QA organization, the dedicated QA organization, the testing specialists that reported up differently, that didn't report up through the product people, they resisted the Agile movement because the Agile movement essentially moved a lot of the responsibility for security onto the development team. And that's actually how I define DevSecOps. It's empowered engineering teams taking ownership of their products all the way to production, which includes security. So I have the same definition for DevOps as I do for DevSecOps. So that is a constant struggle that I have to sort of get the security folks to either support in an ideal world or just sort of let me go and then we'll see the results in the end. The results are really coming in. I mean, just the last few months, I can point to data that shows an 85% reduction in risk for teams that on board to this. So that's really hard for people to resist that. It's very high bang for the buck. I only have 16 people in my team and we have a 400 person security organization. So it's incredibly highly leveraged. That sounds amazing and we're going to dig in, but I do love the QA team analogy. You know, I draw a lot of analogies to the DevOps transformation and talk about it to an extent agile is similar, but not the same overlaps, but isn't exactly the same. 
Okay. I don't think you can do DevOps without having already sort of accepted most of the concepts of Agile. So. Correct, but DevOps probably takes it further. You know, it also kind of loops in or sort of ropes in not just the methodology, but also maybe like a scope of responsibility. But you could maybe sort of say that QA pulled in more responsibility or sort of the Agile pulled in more responsibility indeed for the quality of what you build. And then maybe DevOps kind of pulled in a little bit more around operating it and running it. Exactly. In the process. Exactly. I agree. Um, yeah. But I also love that analogy because of the same type of resistance and changes. I mean, once you draw these different analogies, it's easy to say, okay, now let's follow the same footsteps because it worked in the past. So with that, let's dig into that data because I think you're quite unique in having kind of these elements. So tell us a bit, like how are you measuring the success here? So I described a little bit of how we engage with the team. We have a list of about 45 practices, things that various different security experts think are good things to do. And we have prioritized those. So essentially, we've organized them. So here's the ones that are the best bang for the buck. And those are the ones we talk to first about the teams. And so we have a temporal history of teams that weren't doing practices. And then they adopt a practice or two or three or four. And then we also can correlate incident and network originated scan data to their moment in time. And so that's how we did the research. We basically looked at teams that were doing this practice versus teams that were not. And then to the degree we had temporal data, we looked at teams that switched from not doing the practice to doing the practice. And we measured the impact of individual practice adoption on the lowering of those indicators of risk incidents and, and network originated scans. And this is across all teams or you're talking a sub-selection of the teams that are practicing DevOps already or, or something like that? Our goal is to onboard every development team inside of Comcast, about 500 development teams, about 10,000 developers total, including contractors. We don't have them all yet today. We have about 240 today that are fully on board. We have another 130 or so that are in the queue. So by the end of the year, we'll be at close to 80% saturation. But it might take a long time to get that last 20% because the thing that's mostly missing with those last 20% is that they aren't DevOps first. Yeah, I've been doing this for four years now. A lot of the teams that I started engaging with, I was like, you're not quite ready for this concept. Here's what you need. You need a pipeline, a CICD pipeline. You need automated testing in the pipeline. And then come back to us and we'll sort of get you going. Maybe another step on that sort of maturation that we talked about before in terms of that sort of agile and then DevOps and then DevSecOps. It's DevOps is somewhat of a prerequisite for most DevSecOps activities. It is, it is, yeah. yeah. And Agile is somewhat of a prerequisite for most DevOps. For DevOps. Okay, cool. So you have these sort of 45 metrics. First of all, like maybe, can you give us like four or five examples of the types of metrics? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how do you measure those? We have 11 we consider essential 11 for 2020. Last year for 2019, it was the necessary nine. And this is sort of a moving target intentionally. We declared victory on one of the nine from last year, meaning the whole organization had adopted it. And we added three others. So that's how we got to 11, you know, nine minus one plus three. So, but you've, uh, but you've mapped out the whole 45 and you just sort of chose, did I get that number correct? Yes, that's correct. But you've it is 45 of those nine at first and then three others now. Correct. Uh, and two. Okay. We're pushing the envelope of adoption out into the organization. So we're spreading that way, but we're also spreading the scope of the good practices that we're really sort of expecting everyone to onboard to. So 
Let me describe a couple of them. So the ones that are probably going to ring the most true to you guys are things like doing analysis for code imported in the pipeline. So guy, I know you've got a background in static analysis, SaaS tooling. We consider that analysis for code written because it's basically trying to find flaws in the code you wrote. But I actually believe it's a 20x better bang for the buck to focus on analysis for code imported, which is more like what Sneak is doing. And I know you're associated with them. So the analysis for code imported, you have to put it in your pipeline to automatically run. And that gets you one of the practices. Then you have to get the initial set of findings to zero. That gets you another set of the practices. And then you have to turn on branch protection status checks in your configuration for your pull requests. And that gets you the third practice associated with analysis for code imported. And then the same sort of stack for analysis for code written. We take a little bit different approach on that one, but yeah, it's the same basic idea. So that's two plus two. That's four of the 11 practices I've just sort of talked about right there. Okay. And they're very concrete. You ran it. So I guess how important was it to sort of make them black and white? Like you've measured, you've achieved, you've not achieved. Yeah. What we found when we started this is we weren't measuring it this discreetly. We weren't coaching this discreetly. And people were taking credit for just running the scan, but never resolving the critical and high findings from the scan. And they were spending more and more millions of dollars on licenses and spreading this further and further in their part of the organization. And I was like, stop, we get zero value. In fact, it's net negative value. And this is what the research showed actually, teams that just run the scans, but don't actually do these two other practices, high severity clean and only merge secure code, they actually have a greater risk of something happening in production than folks that either don't do anything or ones that do all three of those things. That was an interesting finding. But the mental model for project managers is, okay, we have 50 teams in our part of the org. Let's go get those 50 teams scanning. And we'll worry about resolving the results of those scans later. And that later never happens. Yeah, because it's hard enough to get that 50. I'm, I'm a firm believer on it. I like to say that it's a part of that switch from auditor to developer because Arguably, an auditor's job is to find an issue, but a developer's job is to fix the issue. So if you want developers to embrace this, you can't just create problems. You need a solution that actually aligns to it. But I also fully agree with the sort of the value to the business, which is until you've fixed it, you've created very little value. And there's some value and visibility so you can choose which issues to fix, but some issues must eventually be fixed for you to actually improve the skill. I argue there's actually net negative value of even knowing I know people like to say there's some value in knowing, but, but I think that that's an excuse that gets used. And it, I don't think it's actually true. I think that from a legal perspective, if you know you have all these problems, but you have a history of never resolving them, you actually have a greater risk from a compliance perspective than if you didn't know, if you didn't have a record of them. But that's a legalistic thing. The part that really sort of makes it net negative for me for the most part is the energy, is the investment, is the time. It's what people focus on. It's what we spend money on buying these licenses. And so you run out of time and money and effort and enthusiasm and budget to actually get people to work on resolving them. And so you want to take one small part of the organization, one or two teams maybe even, get them all the way to high severity clean and only merge secure code before you pick up another set of the organization. And it's not that discreet. We have a very continuous funnel going now, 
But our goal is to get every team that gets into the starting point of that funnel to that sort of really mature level as rapidly as possible. It's not to do this one sort of half part of a practice that's net negative value across the whole organization. Then we'll come back and do the thing that actually starts to produce value because you run out of budget and time and energy before you get there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We're probably going to drill in a little bit on these measures, but before we do that, let's complete the picture on the data. So you talked a little bit about what are the types of things that you measure. How did you assess risk in this model? So these are the things that if you did this, then your risk would go up or down. And so the y-axis is some proxy for risk. We had a, eh, an okay proxy for risk for the first round of research we published at RSA. We're working on and, and we'll have much richer indicators of risk when we update this, hopefully for the next RSA. But the ones that we had for the RSA one were network-originated scans. This is essentially stuff that's in production, that's on the wire, that's on IP addresses that are associated with Comcast, that if you just inspect that IP address on a port scan, you can actually find some vulnerabilities. So this is kind of the way a lot of attackers start their attack. And so if you give them a lot of attack surface there, they have a lot better chance of succeeding in their exploit. And if you don't give them any attack surface there, then you greatly reduce the risk. That was the primary proxy. We had a lot of data from a lot of teams for, we had 158 teams worth of data we could correlate between the practice adoption over time and actual network originated scans. And then we had sparser incident data. So there was an actual exploit and we captured it in this log and we had to shut something down or do something differently to sort of recover from that. And there was a whole incident management process that got executed for that. We should have a lot better incident correlation next year than we did last year. Although I do love the iterative approach, like, you know, just like you can iterate on the measures that you're coming to, you can also iterate on measuring risk. You know, you measure something as long as it's directionally correct, you've made an improvement on it. So ending the suspense a little bit, tell us a little bit about the insights from the data. So you're measuring it. You've got this big data, big body of data here. You're measuring it to risk. What did you learn? A lot of what we learned confirmed what the experts have been saying. So that's not that interesting, but I'll list them as quickly as I can off the top of my head what they are. Only merge secure code, high severity clean. These are two of the practices that are sort of dependent upon scanning, but scanning alone doesn't get you them. We're very high conducting pen testing activities on a regular cadence, getting threat modeling done on a regular cadence, doing secrets management effectively, having a strong process for dealing with external to the team reported vulnerabilities, like the group that runs the network originated scanning will lob findings over to the team. And some teams just have a good process for dealing with that. And other teams just have a history of it taking months for them to respond to those findings. So these are all practices that turned out to be highly correlated with risk reduction. If you did more than a handful of those, the overall risk reduction for the teams that adopted most of those practices was 85% compared to the teams that had adopted none of those practices. So it's pretty dramatic. Are you measuring all 45 or are you just measuring the nine and then the 11? And then yeah, we don't have enough data on all 45. We have a data on the nine from last year and the additional three from this year and a handful of others that we have enough people that have adopted it that it reaches statistical significance. But we do not have data that we could call academically publishable on all 45 at this point. Yeah. Did you use this data then? 
to go to those teams that are not applying those practice and tell them, hey, you're going to be high risk. I mean, there's high level reestablish the executive mandates to it. But in the trenches, you know, when you go off and you talk to those teams, was this convincing to them? Do you feel like minds have changed? Yeah, I think so. But I think that the reason for that is sort of subtle and nuanced. Have you ever heard the phrase, you're never a prophet in your own town? You're always the hero in your own story. You're always the hero in your own story. I don't know how that relates. But the never a prophet in your own town, I thought it was really interesting when I did my first startup. When I would go travel 30 miles down the road to GE Power Generation, they're like, oh, well, that guy's just from Blacksburg. He's, just, he's right here. He can't be that much of an expert. But if I would travel to Houston with, for Exxon was a client, they were like, oh, well, he came halfway across the country. He must be a real expert. And then if I went to Europe, they were like, wow, he came all the way from America. He must be a super expert. You literally have to overcome this. And the worst case scenario is that you work for the same company as the folks that you're trying to influence because they're like, oh, that's just the guy down the hall. I don't have to listen to him. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. So the sort of effect, and this is why I do podcasts like this, and this is why I give talks at RSA, is that I actually get a lot of folks who I've never met at Comcast come up to me, send me a message on the Comcast internal email saying, hey, I saw your talk at blankety blank. And when I get introduced by those folks to the rest of their part of the organization, it's instant credibility. And the data is a big part of that because they're usually inviting me in to redo the RSA talk, essentially, for their lunch and learn for their part of the organization. I don't ever beat up individual teams with individual data. We do celebrate very healthy resolution curves, for instance. We broadcast that widely and say, hey, in three months, they resolved 40,000 things and they've kept it at zero for the last two and a half months already. Look at this cumulative flow diagram. Look how pretty it is, et cetera. But we never really ding people with data. We just sort of... Yeah, but celebrate offered up successful. To so you're still using it to sort of encourage action just in a positive fashion. Another sort of a DevOps mindset versus the common security practice that is a bit more stick than carrot. Can you tell us a little bit about some findings that surprised you a little bit that were not what you expected? You talked about the obvious ones, what gems were in the data that sort of changed your view or that you weren't expecting. So this is the really interesting part. I don't know if you saw the opening skit I had in the RSA talk. I pretend to be a Dick Tracy character and it's a whole investigation. And when what you thought was true gets confirmed, that's okay. That's good. But when you actually are surprised is when the story gets really that's, interesting. Yeah, indeed. So my gal, the truth, she ain't always kind. It's sort of the tagline from that skit. The one I've already talked about is probably the most valuable one. And it makes complete intuitive sense to people. So it's not that surprising from an academic perspective, but from actually the way organizations tend to do it, they don't follow the thing that their intuition would tell them is the right thing to do, is that you can't just run scans, you have to actually resolve them. And the best way to resolve, to get into a habit of resolving them is to put it in the pull request and never in merge code that has any sort of negative findings with your policy settings. And you slowly get to change the dial on the policy setting. But yeah, that's probably the most valuable finding we had. Another thing that we found that was really kind of disappointing, really, that we discovered is that the secure coding training was in that list of seven or so really highly valued practices, getting every developer on the team through this two to three hour war game, man against machine kind of learn what OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities are for your particular tech stack. We use a product from Checkmarks called Code Bashing for that. That is just wonderful. We love it. And that correlated highly with risk reduction. 
But pretty much the rest of our training program, we have a ninja kind of program. We call it green belt and brown belt and black belt. We found that the folks that were going into that were not necessarily doing it because they wanted to improve the security risk of their team. So we had a huge selection bias for the folks going into the green belt and ninja program. When we asked managers, why did you pick Joe to go get the green belt for your team? They were like, well, Joe's not really very good at anything else. So that's why we're going to send him over to the security people and maybe he'll be good at that. So that's not a good indicator that it's going to be highly effective at changing the team's behavior. The other thing is that maybe the selection bias is in a positive sense. The other way is that the teams that already know sort of these, what I would call sort of intermediate level security skills, they, they're already doing them and they don't see the value in 40 hours of additional training to get more of that. And so those teams essentially opt out of that because they're beyond that training would provide to them. Yeah, that was disappointing. And we're revamping that program right now to try to address some of those concerns. We're putting the emphasis on the secure coding training almost completely. It sounds like super valuable learnings. Like it might be disappointing, but as you point out, it's one of those things that are most interesting because they can actually change your behavior because they're not the obvious thing that you thought you're going to do. So it's super valuable. I have a question about the specific practices that you named, and maybe I'm just not tapping to one of the 45. You talked about introducing, talked about stateful things, like you're sort of introducing a test into your pipeline. You got your backlog down to zero. What are your thoughts about more of a graduate, like there's sort of a set of conversations that are more around more the leaky bucket, fix the holes in the bucket first. So focus more on not introducing new problems, you know, focus on sort of the gradual improvement on it. Do you have any thoughts on that versus measuring the state? Is it more important to adopt a practice where you're not making things worse day by day? Or is it more important to sort of use our energy to eat away at the backlog or historical risk? I used to have practices in the framework that were my security policy, my team's security policy. And the first setting of that policy dial was stop the bleeding, meaning let's just focus on not introducing new things. And then let's move on to getting to high severity clean. It's still sort of fundamentally is in the system, is in the framework. And the theory behind it was pretty sound is that the habit you get into by installing it into the pull request pipeline to block it is, so let's set the dial really low and get that sort of automatic feedback mechanism going first. But in reality, we found it very difficult to do that. We found that teams wanted to see all of their high severity findings and their management wanted to see all of those resolved. And it was very hard to get them to even think about things like turning on a branch protection status check with a very low policy dial. Why would we have a very low policy dial? We want all the high severity things done. It was very hard to sort of get over that hump. So we literally switched gears and we now do this progression, start the scans, automated feedback, get it to zero for the first time, turn on the branch protection status checks. And we found that to be much more effective actually than starting with the branch protection status checks with a really low policy dial. That's interesting. It sounds like sort of the pushback from the dev teams, I presume, versus you said the teams there. Is that the security teams or the dev teams that were sort of pushing back against? It was really more sort of when you go to present the outcomes to their management, the dev team's management, that they were like, well, that's great. You have stopped the bleeding for these two or three 
OWASP top 10 things, but what about the rest of them? And that conversation was just stressful and unhappy most of the time. And so we switched to this model. Yeah, interesting. Maybe kind of goes a little bit alongside the same notion of wanting to scan everything, right? You know, just sort of this notion of still some bias in favor of sort of breadth. I need to know all of my risk or apply everything to zero before I apply. We've been successful in basically saying these are all your critical and high severity risks and we're going to ignore the mediums and lows for now. But we were not successful in actually rolling out a stop the bleeding practice. So this is a great practice. You're clearly very deep here. You have a dedicated team. You have executive support for this. I think you've built some software to sort of help find this. If someone listening you know, wants to apply, wants to start down this path of using these models, using those practices, what would you say are the best first steps? You know, what's the minimum for them to get going, to start instilling those practices? Are there resources you would point them to? I get this question all the time. And the, the thing I start with is decide to do DevSecOps transformation. That is the key thing. You have to get enough sort of very high level, read the blog posts, go to conferences, listen to Gartner and Forrester to sort of be confident that you want to do this. Once you decide to do that, the most critical thing you can do, and this is where it falls down most of the time, is do not hire a security specialist only kind of person to lead this effort. You have to hire a distinguished engineer kind of person. Or better yet, and this is how I've been successful with most of the times, is put the 10 most respected engineers in a room and say, here's what we want to do. Here's the vision. Here's the concept. We realize that as security people, we won't have the credibility to pull this off. Are one of you or several of you willing to take the lead and do this for us or with us in partnership with somebody on the security side? And so that key sort of into the engineering organization is really where most folks fail. They basically send somebody out there who's used to policing and they never get to cultural transformation. It yeah. never happens. So. Yeah, that's a great observation. I think it comes down a lot of it to that sort of empathy element. And the question is, mm-hmm. how much empathy can you really achieve? And also, how much empathy do you get on the other side? You know, that element of the most respected, right? Sort of your choice of words there, right? Somebody that is already respected by the technology teams, by the engineering teams taking this on, they're just far better set up to achieve a transformation in how those teams organize. They might be challenged on the security side. You know, they might need a peer over there yeah, <laughs> yeah. to help change minds. On but that. you know what I found, and maybe I'm biased, but I found it's a heck of a lot easier to teach security background skills, practices to an engineer than it is to get a non-engineer to have credibility with engineers. So that credibility with engineers part is the key element. So I pretty much only hire developers and I make sure they continue to be developers even after they come on my team. We build a lot of tools that these teams consume and your job one day might be helping someone consume the tool by helping them integrate it into their pipeline. And the next day, you might pull a feature off the backlog to add to that same tool that you helped them with. And so this sort of, we still do development is really key to our concept. Yeah, I mean, fully agree. Before I have my sort of typical final question, one more question for you. So we talked about the practices, we talked about DevOps and how DevOps moves more of those responsibilities into these autonomous teams and they need to embrace some of this responsibility. The other thing that at least I talk about a fair bit is this notion of cloud and how cloud changes the scope of the app tied in with the 
change in DevOps around independence, you know, but now that independence yes. is making decisions around infrastructure, like containers, like configuration, those elements. What's your view over there? Is it the same practice? Is it the same people? Is there another portion there coming not out of maybe the AppSec team, but rather the CloudSec team that needs to follow this? What's your perspective here, either personal or, or within Comcast? Yeah, so I think within Comcast and what I've seen in the industry is that there are very effective dev-first sort of thinkers in the let's go cloud leadership at even large organizations that have sort of been around a while at Comcast. And I think ours is one of the best. I think the group that is sort of leading the push to the cloud really gets it. They are fully supportive of this concept of DevSecOps. If you're doing DevOps right, you're doing security anyway. It's a part of what we expect you to be doing, et cetera. I think the interesting thing about all of this, and this is one you sort of hinted at, and I pretty sure you think about a lot, but you didn't really dig into. I think the really interesting thing about it is that when you get empowered engineering teams taking ownership of something like ops or quality or security, they do it fundamentally differently. And they almost always do it with code. The tests go from being manual testing suites to being automated testing suites. Ops goes from, here's a checklist of things you use to stand up a new server to here is the code we execute to automatically provision a new VM or a new container, et cetera. And the same thing with security. We want it to be more like security, like security as code kind of thing. So we really want automation. We really want direct feedback to the engineering organization. So I think those are the keys there. No, that's very well said. So we've already gone way longer than we should, and there's just so much more still to ask you, Larry. Really appreciate all the insights. I'll ask you for one more. If you have one bit of advice for a team looking to level up their security foo, something they should start doing, they should stop doing, what would that be? Above and beyond all the great advice you've already shared. So maybe you need to look for that a little bit. Well, let me take the sort of meta question, and I'm going to give the answer for two different groups. If the answer is being directed at a security group, a security team, the first thing they need to do is to figure out how they're going to, A, trust their engineering teams, and B, build trust with their engineering teams. So I've got this blog series called The Trust Algorithm for DevSecOps, and it's really targeted at security specialists and security specialist groups. And that's the number one thing I think they should do is figure out how they convince themselves to trust them and B, how they build the trust back in the other direction. On the team side of things, let me go a little meta with you as well, because we've drilled down pretty low level into specific practices. And I would say learning by doing is sort of a fundamental concept of Agile. It is really a fundamental concept of DevOps and DevSecOps, in my opinion, as well. You have to put stuff out there and you have to see how it behaves in the real world and you have to respond to that feedback and you have to be somewhat deliberate about designing those feedback loops and those metrics feedback systems. The folks that are doing DevOps really well, like let's say the SRE oriented folks, they're completely metrics driven by how they decide what to work on next and what they're going to do. And I think that that is fundamentally the key is learning by doing and having tight feedback loops. Yeah, both sound pieces of advice. Thanks a lot. Larry, this has been great. Thanks a lot for coming onto the show. Thanks, Guy. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And I hope you join us for the next one. 
Thanks for listening to The Secure Developer. That's all we have time for today. For additional episodes and full transcriptions, visit mydevsecops.io. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or get involved with the community, you can also find us on Twitter at at mydevsecops. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes if you enjoyed today's episode. Bye for now.